Welcome to the re-release project of the Keeping Things Alive podcast, which is the republication of episodes that were originally recorded and published between 2016 and 2020 out of Western New York. My name is Laura Evans. I'm a former environmental lawyer, planner, and nonprofit staffer. I also wrote a book called Silent Seasons, Chasing Sustainability Through the Law. The Keeping Things Alive podcast is here to explore the opportunities and challenges as we all live together on this beautiful, living, and interconnected planet Earth. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Keeping Things Alive podcast. Today, I'm sharing my interview with Roger Cook, who is another instrumental leader of the 2015 Rise Up for Climate Justice campaign. Now, Roger is currently the chair of the Sierra Club Political Committee, and he's a co-convener of the Climate Justice Coalition of Western New York, which is the coalition that emerged out of the Rise Up for Climate Justice campaign. He's been working to keep it going and respond to current events and how to keep this group together moving forward because living with and addressing climate change is something that will be affecting people for a very long time. And so although the energy of fall 2015 was amazing, it takes work and organization to sustain that effort. And Roger is also the chair of the Issues Committee of the Western New York chapter of the Working Families Party. So what Roger really brings to this conversation about climate justice is his work with the labor unions and how they can be effective allies in this effort and how they also have skin in the game when it comes to climate justice. He's the former director of the Western New York Council on Occupational Safety and Health and he's the founder of the Ecumenical Task Force of the Niagara Frontier, which is the group that advocated for relocation of Love Canal and Forest Glen residents. Um, that is something that we get into during this interview. I am from Western New York, had heard about the Love Canal as you know, the reason for the Superfund law, and I didn't really understand the backstory. So Roger was there in person, one of the main people on the ground working to make this happen for people who lived in that area, had bought houses, were getting sick, and had no idea that they lived on top of a toxic waste site. Um, the other thing is that Roger built the New York State Labor Environment Coalition, and he's a former adjunct professor of sociology at the State University of New York at Buffalo and the State University College at Buffalo. Um, Roger does an amazing job of bringing together the environmental movement, the labor movement, and the faith-based community. He sees how those three groups can really come together to affect change on a large scale, and his work throughout the decades has been instrumental in helping make that happen in Western New York. So I'm very, it was great to talk to Roger. He's the first person who I didn't know that well beforehand. And I really enjoyed speaking with him and getting to know him through this interview. So I'm excited to share with you my interview with Roger Cook. 
So I'm talking to Roger Cook today. He is a board member of the Sierra Club, and he has been instrumental in the climate justice movement and campaign. So hi, Roger. Hi, Laura. <laughs> um, so I'm just going to jump right into it. Sure. Uh, so when someone is asking you, what do you do? How do you answer that question? Well, I say, first of all, I'm retired from my regular job, but okay. <laughs> um, I work on environmental issues, okay. particularly the whole climate change issue. Right. It's one of the things I do. Okay. So let's, and then how do you, how do you work on the climate change issue currently? Well, I do want to go back to your former yeah, yeah. position, but. Right. Well, the other thing I do, by the way, is I'm also the um, the chair of the Issues Committee for the Working Families Party here in the Western New York chapter in New York State. And so we've been working also somewhat on environmental issues there as well. Um, but I, my uh, position at the Sierra Club is I'm the, um, I'm the political director or the political chair of the uh, political committee. Um, so that's one of the roles I have. Yeah, what does that look like on a, I don't know, weekly basis, I guess? <laughs> it's not really weekly, Monthly. but it's, I think we're still trying to develop it. Um, but we've been basically interviewing candidates who are running for political office, particularly here in New York, New York State. And uh, we quiz them on their environmental positions. Where do they stand on global warming? Where do they stand on uh, ec you know, economic development using uh, renewable energy. What kinds of laws do they see that we need to pass in the state to get more renewable energy on board? How do we start phasing out fossil fuels? Those okay. kinds of issues. What kind of response do you typically get from a politician? I guess it depends yeah, we, <laughs> a lot. I think we but... endorsed about five or six people that were running for assembly. And, um, we out of how many? Well... Maybe I should say Assembly and Senate. Okay. Um, well, most it's been mostly uh, Democrats that we've uh, that have been running for office, but we've invited we invite Republicans to fill out our questionnaire, mm -hmm. and uh, we ask them a, lo a lot of questions about about their environmental positions, and based on that we score them, and uh, it turned out I think that we we endorsed all Democrats this time around. Okay, that's good. So to go back a little ways, yes. um, talk about what your career was before you retired. Yes, I was the uh, executive director of the Western New York Council on Occupational Safety and Health from about 1984 till about 2013. And um, in that position, I was... Uh, we worked mostly with labor unions. We had a large labor union membership because Western New York is a union town, mm -hmm. probably more dense than most cities in the country. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were dealing with uh, the occupational health issues. We, our movement, that whole movement came out of the 19, right, right around uh, 1970. Uh, part of it was the farm workers, the United Farm Workers Union had formed in about 19, uh, mid 80s, no, I'm sorry, mid 70s, 60s, <laughs> mid 60s, and uh, also the Chemical and Atomic Workers Union under the leadership of Tony Mazaki. Beca they beca and the uh, also the mine workers all became very 
concerned about the uh, hazards that they were facing, and that's when we became aware of occupational diseases that were being caused by chemicals, uh, by dust from cotton dust, for example. Cotton work, people worked in the textile mills typically got a lung disease, debilitating. Uh, the mine workers, of course, um, with coal dust, it was black lung. Um, so uh, the asbestos workers, we called it white lung. Okay. There's a whole host of um, diseases that workers get, many of them here in this western New York area, not, mm -hmm. not coal mining, of course. But um, so we formed a, an organization. We, our first gathering was in um, 1979, and over 300 workers came to a big uh, union hall. And uh, they committed to forming this organization. So what d got you personally interested in this uh, labor movement? Well, I've, I used to, I taught sociology at the University, uh, University of Buffalo, Buff State, a number of colleges in the area. Okay. And one of my main interests was in labor and the conditions of, uh, of working people. And uh, the health issue uh, be, was of interest because we were becoming aware of how many workers were dying. We figured at least 100,000 workers were dying every year from exposure to uh, to chemicals, to dust, uh, the things I just mentioned. Right. So that's that. That's how I got started, and um, and then I I have an interest in organizing, and okay. so I got involved as the director of the council and working with the unions to get them mobilized and organized and uh, for, for change, for changes in the workplace. That's great. Did you go straight from teaching to this new position, or was it kind no. of a transition? It was a transition because I, it's a not-for-profit, so we, right. we didn't have much money <laughs> right. initially, so I was still teaching, particularly at Buff State at that time. And, um, and I kept teaching as I worked into the other job as well. But then finally I made a total commitment to the council. Where did you grow up? Uh, Michigan, in, uh, in a little town called Hubbard Lake near Alpena, Michigan, which is on the shores of Lake Huron. Okay. The 45th parallel. <laughs> I haven't been there. And then when did you move to Buffalo or Western well, I went to I went to Central Michigan and got my master's, and then I came to UB to get my doctorate, ah. which I never finished. I got everything done but the dissertation, but I was more interested in activism, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. So while at UB, I was very active in the anti-war movement and, in the, and also education reform. We, we had set up a whole system of alternative education within the university. Mm -hmm. um, they were called the colleges, and I was the coordinator for social science college. And okay. So we were reform-oriented. So how did you meet with other people who were interested in the same organizing labor issues that you were? And then how did you meet regularly or how did right. you communicate and decide what to do? Well, actually, my my friend who was an undergraduate at the time when I was in the graduate school, before they formed the Council on Occupational Safety and Health, I got to know him. And we did a lot of door-to-door -door canvassing. Mm -hmm. uh, we were trying to... Uh, for example, make uh, Niagara Mohawk a privately owned corporation into a public utility. So we were going around trying to 
get voters to vote it, to make it in a public utility. So we used to knock on doors, okay. that kind of stuff. So I, I got involved in the canvas. That was the, kind of the first, besides the organizing we did on campus against the war, which was my first real foray into that. That, mm-hmm. was, that was like 67 through 73 or so. Right. I guess I'm I'm curious in a time, you know, before the internet or email or social media, how how did you all find each other? Like, <laughs> were you at a bar or classes or Both. what what happened? Both. I think well the the campus at UB was in great turmoil during oh, the okay. war well, and we were pushing hard to get the university to take a stand against the war and our professors and so forth. So that was the initial organizing. I got involved with the Graduate Student Association. Mm. We had a lot of students who were in the Undergraduate Student Association. We got we met there, and that was part of it. We had anti-war organizations as well. Okay. We went to tons of demonstrations in Washington, D.C. We'd get on buses. and okay. go. So the commu- communication in those days was largely face-to-face mm-hmm. and then picking up the old telephone and calling and okay getting together yeah. yeah we we did it without the internet we right yeah no I'm, yeah. i know you did that's why i'm curious yeah. how it worked yeah. um i mean i don't necessarily think the internet's a, a perfect way to communicate I, I actually i like the in-person right work a lot yeah. better um i'm just curious then because you were involved then and now in a different role but still doing organizing and advocacy what do you see the differences i mean post-election there's just been so much more organizing and protesting and where do you see the well i think it's generational i think my generation we still are you we don't use smoke signals but we do we pretty much rely on the phone we rely on i use email Mm -hmm. but i uh i don't use facebook i just don't do it because i don't want to be bothered with it but i know that your generation is that's the way they're organizing through texting and Mm -hmm. stuff and i think that's that's what's new, the, the, the uh, new forms of communication that your generation has. Mm-hmm. And you can mobilize so quickly. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, ever, I'm just flabbergasted. Okay, I, yeah. I was active in Bernie Sanders' campaign a little bit, you know, here mm-hmm. in Western New York. But uh, when they called a rally, I expected to be a bunch of people my age uh, down there and maybe uh, maybe 50 of us. There were hundreds of people there and they were all young people. Yeah. And I said, where did all these people come from? And it was clear you were, it was through the networking you do okay. via the uh, internet and using Facebook and texting. Yeah. I think yeah. so. I like it for, for things happening quickly, yeah. but I, I do feel like something occasionally is missing with the right. in-person stuff. So yeah, yeah you see I each think, other at rallies right. and then go back. I think if you're going to build a stable, ongoing organization as opposed to direct action events, yeah, you have to take a lot more time and do what I call one-on-ones. It's an old union thing. Every When the unions organize and try to organize, a say, a factory or an office, mm-hmm. the main method they use is to go and talk to the people that work there in their homes, try to get a meeting with them and do sit down and do one-on-ones. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is I think that to build stable relationships and build trust, you have to really spend that time. Yeah. And so that's, that's the kind of organizing I did primarily. Right. It was a lot more. Well, I, I guess I hope that more people will combine the two strategies. I think that they're both mm-hmm. super valuable and so... Exactly right. Could be no, I agree with you. Yeah, I agree. 
So before we started talking, you were telling me about your experiences around the Love Canal, which yes. is a very famous environmental issue. But can you kind of elaborate on the backstory of that and sure. how how it really put Buffalo on the map, but also expanded right. out to other right. places in the country? Right. Well, I happen to live across the river, East River, uh, Grand Island, uh, from the Love Canal we were renting and uh, when I he first heard about it in 1978 in the fall, uh, the residents in that neighborhood across the river over in the LaSalle area of Niagara Falls became aware that their homes, uh, maybe 700 or more homes, but the first inner, what we call the first rings, were right on the, a huge toxic dump site that they were unaware of when they bought their homes. A school was built on the dump site. Uh, not directly in the dump site, but just in their backyards. Mm -hmm. And um, over 22,000 tons of probably the most toxic chemical waste that you could imagine were buried there in yeah, who, mostly who barrels. Who did that? Occidental Chemical, although at the time before Occidental bought them, they were owned by Hooker Chemical. Okay. So Hooker was like a division of Occidental. And um, so they buried that there. It was an old canal that they were going to dig, and this guy named Love... William Love in the 1898 was going to dig a canal from from the Niagara River all the way over to the gorge mm -hmm. and run water over it and create electricity. So he was ahead of his time, but a depression occurred, and so it uh, never materialized, but there was about a mile of canal there. It was probably 20-some feet deep and um, not real wide, but uh, it went for a mile, and so Hooker dumped its waste material in there mm -hmm. and uh, and then buried it. And in 52, I think, they closed that site and sold it to the school board for a dollar. And that's when the school board built, had a school built there. And they thought they were getting a real deal, but oh, yeah. uh, they weren't told <laughs> exactly what the hazards were. And I suppose in those days, too, they didn't, at least Occident or Hooker let on, they didn't understand that those chemicals would leach out and uh but it's they were uh, in barrels yeah they were in barrels like, you know metal barrels some some out. cardboard oh my gosh okay and so uh yet every you know the one of the ones the chemicals they found there was dioxin which is considered the worst probably mm -hmm. the most toxic chemical anyway so then when they built the school of course you're digging you're excavating you're they were pretty close to where the canal was. Yeah. Then they built all the houses around it with basements, mm -hmm. and then they kept going out into what we call the outer rings of homes. So they, mm -hmm. so and then the canal itself um, uh, had sway, what we call swales running through it. These were low areas that kind of ran out toward the Niagara River. They were all filled in, and when they built the homes to create the nice, you know, level yards and all that stuff. So uh, what happened is in, by 78, a lot of those barrels had rusted and uh, cardboard boxes, of course, gave way. So uh, stuff, actually the chemicals started surfacing to mm. the top and they would find oily slicks. Like uh, homeowners on, uh, or just people? Mostly behind the school and stuff. Oh, okay. But then what happened is the stuff was running and getting into the uh, storm sewer system. So that would take it past people's homes and stuff and then the uh 
became they determined that the chemicals were actually filed, you know with with particularly all the precipitation in 1977 we had had a famous blizzard here in buffalo yeah and it closed the city down for about a week but all that precipitation stuff the chemicals kind of floated to the top and they were moving through those swales and getting into people's basements and stuff and so the the fight was to get the state of new york to do to address their issues and uh what the people wanted was to be moved out of that neighborhood, and uh, but there was no provisions for who's going to pay for it, state government, federal government, who's paying for it. And so out of that whole battle, they, they did move the first 230 families that lived on what we call the very inner rings, mm -hmm. uh, either across the street from the canal or whose homes were on the back of the backyards around the canal. They moved, moved those people out in 1978. Because there was a gubernatorial election and a lot of pressure. Okay. And then finally, just to bring it to a close, uh, the uh, Congressman LaFaults, who represented that area, was able to put a bill into Congress, into the U.S. Congress, and that's where we got the Superfund program. Ah, that I came, see. That came out of Love Canal. Right. And so, uh, so Superfund became the way we were able to pay to move people out Mm -hmm. And then they would, then the government, the Department of Justice would go after the corporations to try to get money to back f to reinfuse the fund. I see. But the idea was to make sure the residents were safeguarded. So that that that's the program we still have, Superfund. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that came out of there. I think the last thing I'd say about Love Canal, it became a flashpoint in the whole world. Everybody became aware. It was we had. People from Germany, from all over the world, coming here and doing interviews and meeting with people, and that's when we became aware of uh, the uh, impacts that chemicals could have on people, right? And, uh, particularly these toxic waste dumps, and so uh, that started that whole movement. So then, did people look for them in other places? Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, we formed. What did a, they find? We formed a New York State Environmental Labor Environmental Network, actually. Okay. Because the unions. Uh, a lot of the union workers, it was kind of interesting, a lot of the workers that worked in the chemical plants, their jobs were dependent on those chemical corporations, mm -hmm. same corporations that they were fighting against. And so there was often tension within families between, say, the wives and children, you know, on the one side and the husband on the other and stuff. But by and large, they, they were able to, I think through forming the Love Canal Homeowners Association, we formed the ecumenical task force. We brought the religious community in to advocate for these folks to make them whole. Okay. And so I think that that that's in, it took 2 years but finally President Car then President Carter came to Niagara Falls and announced he would move everybody out. So, oh, okay. Yeah, that's what it took. But it took a long. It was a battle. Yeah. Mm. What what how would you describe your role in that? Well, I was I I I did I picketed and stuff with the homeowners. I knew um Dr. Bev Pagan who was a researcher at Roswell, and she had been helping the homeowners. Mm -hmm. They were doing this. Um, they were gathering. The, the residents were gathering their own data, mostly the women. Uh huh. They, and that's when they formed the homeowners association. They went around and asked people what kind of symptoms they were having, what kind of illnesses. Okay. And that's when they found that there were excess cancers, uh, reproductive problems, mm -hmm. um, um, that kind of stuff, and so uh, they had that data. And, and I had called my friend Bev who I knew from UB days. Mm -hmm. And so um, I asked, should I go over and get involved a little bit? And so I did. 
But then I thought, you know, what we need to do is really pull other groups together. That's when we brought the uh, religious community and we formed the ecumenical task force to advocate. Yeah, that that's really interesting because that's now part of the Climate Justice Coalition. Yeah, right, and right. so yeah. I, I like how you've uh, been involved in both right. of those. Do you see, I mean, actually, I haven't talked with anyone yet about the interfaith group of climate justice. Right. Um, I don't know if you want to explain that a little bit, and then right. if there's any comparisons between the Love Canal faith sure. group and this current one. Right. Well, I think that, you know, the reason I, I was one of the instigators to get the current interfaith climate justice community. Well, thank you. ICJC <laughs> organized. Yeah. Along great. with Sister Eileen, who was an old friend of mine up at St. Joe's. And, uh, and then Linda, I got, Linda got involved and so forth. But, we, uh, I got interested because when I heard the Pope was going to come out with his encyclical, mm-hmm. uh, Laudato, Laudato Si, which was on our common home, and I, really addressed. I read it. It's it's great. a beautiful work. It's just beautiful stuff. And uh, so when I was hearing that he was going to come out with this, I said, "This is the time to bring the religious community together." So I started with my Catholic friends. I'm not Catholic, but. Uh, I have a great network because I used to work on the, oh, it's a long story, but we had the sanctuary <laughs> movement in Buffalo mm. when people come coming up from El Salvador. The sisters were very involved. When so was I, that? Oh, that would have been in the uh, mid-80s. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, that's another whole thing. We, <laughs> right. we took people into our homes and stuff. But that was all organized through the religious community. So mm-hmm. it's just the sense that, you know, the religious community – uh, in terms of its, um, it doesn't matter what faith community you talk about, the creation or is somehow sacred in everybody's tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may not believe in a creator, you know, the Buddhists may not, but nonetheless, there's this sense that this is what the Pope defined as a gift. We all kind of understood it's a gift, and uh, we we have a responsibility to care for it. And so the Catholics formed this Care for Creation organization in their churches uh more on paper than they were real but as we brought people together i think we're trying to find ways to become much more active so i see the uh religious community is playing a key role there's a heck of a lot more religious folks believers Mm -hmm. maybe 70 percent of the population in terms of environmentalists there's about five or six percent of the population so if we can get to people who just live ordinary lives who uh, are moved by moral arguments or feel like they they should be acting because this is what their faith tradition tells them, mm-hmm. that this is another way to get more people involved so it's not just the small core of environmentalists. That's my interest is to broaden the base. Yeah. And uh, and I learned that really through Love Canal because we brought the, 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 we brought, mostly it was churches and synagogues up in Niagara Falls in that area together and uh, we kept that organization going far beyond when the people moved out of Love Canal because there were all these other dump sites around the state. Mm-hmm. And so we stayed active, and particularly in Niagara Falls, we were still active. And then we formed the Labor Environment Network. We were part of that organizing. And we had, and the religious community has an opportunity to have a lot of contacts with legislators or their staff. Okay. And so we would, we would be getting all kinds of inside information. 
about, about what was really in that dump site, even if the officials were trying to let on, it wasn't a problem. Their staff were giving us information, so we were. So the staff was giving information to the religious. To our our and, staff, we had the okay. ecumenical task force. We hired oh, okay. we hired we hired a Catholic sister to be our director, uh, Sister Marjean Hoffman, and then we hired a few more people that came out of different couple of different churches uh, to be on staff, and they were often because we, we were we were advocating. We weren't just giving people blankets or shelter and that kind of stuff, but we were also advocating to get people moved out and that kind of stuff mm -hmm. and making sure that when we found other dump sites that that the government would respond in a responsible way and really uh, look at the health issues mm -hmm. because the because the government had tended to try to downplay they they wanted to downplay it because they knew it was going to be tax dollars we were going to have to figure out how to pay for it so mm -hmm. but partly that's why Superfund helped take care of that problem yeah <clears throat> thank you Okay, so now I want to move fast forward a little bit to kind of your backstory of getting involved with environmental advocacy work. I mean, it sounds like you've been doing it the whole time because that's what worker health is. It's an environmental right. thing. But I guess then I can switch to how how did you get involved with Sierra Club specifically? Right. right. Well, just a little bit going back. Yeah, go for when it. When we formed the Western New York Council on Occupational Safety and Health, that was the same time the Love Canal okay. was going on. Right. So you had a lot of workers in those chemical plants and stuff. The The health and safety movement was catching on among the auto workers, chemical workers, a lot of steel workers, a lot of different unions, and they were concerned about their workers' health. So that became a, a focal point. The Love Canal really kind of exploded it in a way that made everybody aware that all these chemicals and the corporations at at that point were behaving like they often do and denying there was a problem and the government was also denying so I, some of the first contacts uh, that the love canal homeowners had was with the united auto workers mm. uh who came down and gave money to them because they were they had safety. They knew about chemicals in their own plants, so mm -hmm. they they knew that this. And some of the members who their members who lived in the Love Canal asked for help from the UAW, for example. So when we formed the uh, when we formed the uh, Western New York Council on Occupational Safety and Health, uh, we actually brought some, some people from Love Canal to our to one of our big conferences where the 300 workers came. Uh -huh. And I think what we were trying to do, I think, is one show that we all had a common issue here it was these big corporations who had poisoned workers in their workplace and were poisoning them in their communities. And uh, so there needed to be a common interest or a common bond. We needed to work together. That's when we soon after that formed the Labor Environment Network for New York State. Okay. And we worked together and really did a lot of advocacy with our politicians. So does this network still exist no, today? No, it doesn't, sadly not. Okay. Well, so I'm interested in that too. How long was it able to be sustained and then where did it go? I think we sustained it as long as the toxic waste issue was was alive and well. And that that persisted into the 90s. Okay. And we kept we kept it going. We had and we we actually got the former Governor Cuomo, Governor Mario Cuomo, mm -hmm. to come to Western New York and announce that he was going to shut down that uh, big uh, 
dump site you see up there in uh, Niagara Falls. It looks like a mountain. Mm-hmm. It, uh, those days it was called Seacoast, which I don't remember. We called it Mount, Mount Psycho. <laughs> but uh, they were still bringing chemical waste into that place. right in, a, And there was a trailer park and residential neighborhoods all around it. So we did organize and mobilize, and we were successful in getting the governor to come to say that they were not going to get permitted to continue to expand okay. the chemical waste part of it. They still brought in the solid waste stuff, oh. and they're still doing it, I think. But wow. chemical waste, we got we got blocked. So that's just one example. But we were able to do across the state a lot of get get some kind of justice for the right. families that worked in those lived in those neighborhoods. Okay, that's and, good. And you want to keep me going well, here? Well, yeah, I'm trying to right. get you through time to right. how you intersected with the right. Sierra Club. Okay, so then, uh, so the Western New York Council on Occupational Safety and Health then became a stabilized organization, and we we did a lot of occupational safety and health training and education, mm-hmm. helping workers to understand what hazards they were exposed to. We got the right to know law passed in New York State, the first state to pass one. Mm-hmm. Workers used to work with these chemicals and they go to their and they they were getting sick headaches nosebleeds whatever and cancers and they go to their employer and say i'd like to know what i'm working with and the employer didn't have any obligation to mm-hmm. tell them what they were working with even though even if it was a unionized facility so uh, we pushed then to get a right to know law passed in new york state which made it um uh, made it incumbent upon the employers to tell their workers what they were working with and that's where the Material data safety oh, data yes. sheets, which you may yes. be familiar with, um, come from that. That was the whole right to know. And that became a national law finally after mm-hmm. we got a number of state laws passed. So, uh, uh, so I was able to stay in that position and keep working on those kinds of issues. We were we were helping workers. We set up an occupational clinic where they could get diagnosed mm. for occupational diseases. Most doctors know nothing about occupational disease. Still? Uh, not much. They don't get any up at UB. They probably only get a few hours of training on occupational medicine. Wow. Okay. Yeah, there aren't a lot of board certified physicians. In fact, in those days, we used to say the company docs who worked for the corporations would basically be there to say, there's not really a problem. You're okay. You know, that kind of thing. Wow. So that's why we set up this clinic. Mm-hmm. So that was another another piece of it. So uh, how did I get involved with the Sierra Club? Well, let's see. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. I, um, uh, I think it was around largely the uh, climate, becoming aware of the climate change issue. How did that work for you? Like, what moment did, <clears throat> or time did you, did that resonate with you? Yeah, I, maybe seven or eight years ago. Okay. I had read Bill McKibben's book, and the end, what was it called? The end of something or other. Yeah. In, in the, ni- or <laughs> in the ni- 90s. Yeah, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, so I, at a theoretical level, mm-hmm. I had some idea about it. And as we became more aware of, of that issue, um, I'm trying to remember who the chair of the. I think it was Bob Chichelsky. But anyway, I probably about five or six, seven years ago, I started going to the meetings. Okay. And uh, and then some of the people, like particularly Linda, and she was chair for a while of the group, was especially concerned about the whole climate issue and right the um, fact that it if we don't address it, we're pretty well doomed. I had also done some reading by a guy named Love, Lovelock, who was uh, who uh, 
wrote a, a book on called Gaia Theory, the yeah, notion yeah. it's all interconnected. And then, of course, there's been some theologians like Brian Swim and some of those people have written stuff on the interconnectedness of it all. Yeah, is Lovelock the person who coined the term spaceship Earth? No, no, that, no who that is was that? another guy. That yeah. was more on population. Oh, okay. I don't know if that was Lester Brown or one of those guys, but okay, never mind. No, Lovelock was Gaia. Gaia theory. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I I like that one. And he's he's the guy that, along with uh, now James Hansen from NASA and some of mm, those folks, mm-hmm. uh, realize there's all these feedback loops, and as we as we keep pumping more and more carbon or methane into the atmosphere, the Earth continues to warm and with all the consequences we see. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Irrespective of the chemical consequences or pollution. So yeah, that, that makes sense. So I think, I think the, I don't know if this is, unless you want to do this a little bit later, but I think the, when I joined the Sierra club and got involved, probably again, eight, nine years ago, I don't know the, I came, I still came at it from the labor side. So, Mm Uh, and in our labor environment network, one of the things that we talked a lot about is that there are common interests that workers and communities have and environmentalists have. Mm-hmm. There's also uh, differences. Uh, workers are concerned about their jobs. Right. And um, so when environmentalists say, well, shut that, that coal plant down, shut that down, uh, Workers often get their backs up because that's their livelihood. Mm-hmm. It'd be like going to the university and saying to the professors up there, uh, "We're going to close your place down because we think you can retool it, we can do it, do education better, but we'll reopen it and you'll have your job back." Right. So I think that workers often become become defensive, and so one of my heroes was Tony Mizaki out of the Oil Chemical and Atomic Workers Union, okay. which is now they merged with the. Steelworkers eventually, but uh, basically Tony was the guy who, and it was, he was a personal friend of mine who came up with the word "just transition." Mm. That we have, that, <clears throat> and it wasn't in the context of global warming. It was at that time in terms of chemical exposures and people living in neighborhoods where they were being exposed to chemicals, uh, wanting to shut the plants down. And Tony said, "Well, we need to negotiate and get get the workers and the community together and see if there aren't things we could do mm-hmm. to." Uh, resolve the problem and sometimes you could put controls on these plants and not have to shut them down Mm -hmm. but if you had to shut them down then uh, the idea was that it was incumbent on environmentalists to work with labor to advocate for making the workers whole who lost their jobs okay so you're seeing that right now up at Tonawanda Coke where uh, the environmental group up there the clean air coalition is um, has advocated for getting money for the because when they shut the when they shut the power plant down um the revenue that went for taxes for the school schools which was millions of dollars dried up and so your school system is impacted the workers there was you know the workers lost their jobs so all that impact so you're so what they did is they went to the legislature to say we need help funding these communities and these workers to get them through the transition Mm -hmm. before they can. What kind of job will they take instead? Well, like hopefully. Yeah. You know, hopefully a lot of these industrial workers will find work 
in renewable energy. Okay. But I think, again, you, it's easy for us to say that as a platitude. And right, say, right. Well, there'll be another job for you. Don't worry about it, you know. We're going to be erecting windmills. And, right, but and that's a very different skill set. It's a different skill set. So you have to put retraining okay. into, your legislate, you know, into your legislative package. You need... Um, you need a transition to help workers get through that period when they're not make, getting the salary. Mm-hmm. Uh, you use early retirement for okay. the older workers. Right. But you're, you're trying to make people whole as you make this transition. Yeah. And so I think if I brought something to the Sierra Club, it was kind of that perspective, that you can't just stand out there in front of these coal plants and say, shut them down. Right. You've also got to start talking to the people in those communities and the workers right and uh, it's not always smooth sailing I know I I see that right now I I was telling you earlier that I did go to the one of the pipeline hearings for the Department of Environmental Conservation and I did not know what to expect um, but I was really blown away by the couple of unions that had really organized in support of the pipeline and because of jobs and it made sense to me like why that they why they would care about that so much but it really did kind of shock me in the moment that i guess i've been in my own little no pipeline bubble for so long that i didn't realize that many people would spend their wednesday evenings doing that but they did so no i know well the international union particularly the labor's union has come out strongly in support of pipelines Whoops. And the, the, the and uh, so have the steel workers. Who steel workers have been the were when we formed the Labor Environment Network. They were really a very supportive union at that time. Okay. But and right right up until fairly recently, they they got the climate uh, change global warming issue. They, under, they understood, understood it. Yeah. But at some point, uh, they've lost so many jobs that they uh, they now are right now supporting steel production for pipeline pipe for the pipes right the laborers for laying the pipe so you're getting certain unions you got to split in the labor movement okay right now the healthcare unions and the public sector unions whose members aren't directly impacted mm-hmm. like the communication workers here in buffalo represent a lot of our healthcare workers in the colitis system you've got the uh, nurses united union uh at the national level, on the Standing Rock pipeline, mm-hmm. you had um, you had the uh, National Nurses Union come out and and give I think fifty thousand dollars to the folks. Okay. Um, so we the Service Employees International Union, which represents again a lot of healthcare workers and workers in nursing homes and so forth, they've been very supportive of of measures to curb climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, but it filters all the way up to the national level. So within the national AFL-CIO, you got splits. Mm. You have the coal worker. You know, you got the coal miners who've, who've, of course, want their job. So the right. tension right now is it's kind of scary for me, is that Trump has been pretty cagey about bringing those guys in that represent the workers directly impacted. Yeah. And he wants, he says he wants to reopen the coal mines and mm-hmm. stuff. And he has no, I, I don't know if he's going to eventually get it with climate change, but so far, you know, he's said it was a hoax. Yeah. So it's created a lot of tension and, uh, but I think it's healthy tension and I think mm-hmm. we'll work through it. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> to me, like I understand 
well, I don't understand it, but I, I get people still wanting to deny climate change because then you don't have to deal with the problem. But it seems to me that if you do accept it and then decide what you're going to do about it, there is actually a lot of job creation potential mm-hmm. there. But it does require that just transition to something. I mean, beyond renewable energy, right. just everything, you know, right. flood control, um, moving people different places. There, there seems to be a lot right. of economic opportunity there. There it's does. Just I think not. It's mis- right. mismatched. But what we need is really law, or we need something that makes that happen. Yeah. For example, our transportation is a much bigger contributor to right to global warming than is uh, are the power plants, which mm-hmm. power our buildings, but or uh, heat our buildings and light our lights and so forth. But um uh so what what we need is for example i think the governor and the legislature needs to put together a package for transforming our total transportation system in new york state mm. if we're going to conquer if the if we're going to get to where the governor wants to be he says 50% renewables by 2030 and 100% by uh, 2050 uh, if we're going to get there, we're going to have to do a lot of transformation. So the mm-hmm. transition is is going to take the legislators and the governor mm-hmm. and all of us activists working together to say, okay, we need high-speed rail from New York City to Buffalo, for example. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the subway system in New York City has been having a lot of problems. That all has to be retooled. Right. There's all, there, we need a subway system or we need a transportation rapid rail from say albany to montreal there's 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 all kinds of possibilities yeah and it's going to take a lot of money but you're going to have to make that commitment right so it's it's, going to take a lot of money to deal with the impacts of what we're doing now anyway exactly right and we're putting money in i mean we're giving all kinds of subsidies to the fossil fuel industry Mm -hmm. to keep the old system going so we got to reverse that begin to build the incentives in Mm-hmm. to uh, go into, say, modernizing our transportation system. Um, more solar and more wind, we need We need to modernize all of that. Right. So uh, there's a, it's, gonna, it's, it's like an economic transformation, though, that's comparable to, say, the period uh, when the, of the Great Depression and the kind of movement we're going to have to, to make. It's doable. I think technologically it's, it's doable. And mm-hmm. the more, we, you know, right now solar is, competitive uh with with other energy so uh and that happened because we started doing solar once you start doing solar then you make innovations in the technology Mm -hmm. with wind the same thing it's going to get once they start doing wind investors are going to be interested in well how do we how do we make these uh systems more efficient yeah so they're mostly interested how do we make money on our investments but Uh it um it so it's doable. I think it's it's very doable. Yeah. So I'm optimistic for that reason. I am too. I mean that that is my source of optimism for right. all of this. So thank you. I guess I we've already touched on the climate justice movement a little bit and with the faith based stuff. Right. But if just to really focus on it right now, what was your experience getting it off the ground that those first couple of months when right. things were really rocking and, and then kind of what's happening now? Right. 
Well, with the faith community, with any other kind of the labor, it doesn't matter. The labor community, 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 it doesn't matter. Uh-huh. You have to organize. Yeah. And, and uh, how would you define organize? I'm just a personal curiosity. I hear right. it all the time, and I. Right. I, I well, don't you look know. at you look at what people's interests are, mm-hmm. and uh, then you try to figure out how do you how do you get them interested in the issue? How do you get them mm-hmm. involved and so, uh, and what friends do you have that, you know, I had old friends from all the other battles we fought, Love Canal and yeah. immigrant, you know, the whole uh, refugee thing. So you have your contacts within the churches that y- you can rely on. I think that to organize within the faith community is important. You'll be part of the faith community. Yeah. And a lot of people don't care to be part of the faith community. And I, I understand that, but it, but you have to be genuine, and you have to be willing to talk about, I think, the issue in terms of morality, moral mm-hmm. moral terms, not less less technological or less economic, but more what do what is what do our faith traditions tell us that we're obligated to do? Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so, in terms of organizing, one of the we when the pope came out with the encyclical we took a leap of faith basically and we we called for that rally on the 24th well of September of 2015 mm-hmm. so when he was speaking in washington we were i we was had, there I, you I, were there i did like it a lot right we <laughs> it had was big. 2 to 300 people came and the religious community was a big piece yeah. of it along with the labor community and environmentalists of course mm-hmm. and uh and then having had that success, then we were able to build toward the Paris climate talks, and we had the uh, big gathering down at uh, Temple Beth Zion. That's the other one I wanted to talk to you about because yeah. I did go to that one right. too. And can you, I explain the um, the food situation there. I, I really the food situation. <laughs> I really loved that because um, <laughs> it was Thanksgiving weekend. It, it was, wasn't it? And. Actually, Aggie, Agnes Williams, who's Seneca, yes. who's part of our interfaith group, mm-hmm. uh, uh, came up with, I don't know how many turkeys she got for us. A lot of it was, she she came up with the turkeys. It was all put together by just grassroots folks. Right. And uh, so we we thought it was important to have a meal, to, to be able to gather and center ourselves. So that was a piece of it. The other was to have that ritual. It was kind of yes. where we had the tree and the rock and the people putting ribbons on it, stating their hopes and their fears and mm-hmm. being able to speak out about how they feel about it from the heart. And, yeah. And, and I think that's what the, the religious community can kind of bring that component out. People can actually speak from their hearts. And and I think I think really... A lot of social actions driven by emotion, uh, yes. more than facts or figures. They're important. They're very important. But but uh, you need to feel it, I think, to become more committed. And right. So, and that's, it's funny. Yeah, you're talking about emotions <clears throat> versus facts. They're, they're both reality. So, yeah, right. it is really important not to discount. Right. I mean, the, fa- the facts of climate change don't tell you what to do about it. Right. So you have to draw on something. So mm-hmm. you don't have to be religious, of course, but mm-hmm. but faith traditions do have that advantage of having stories and creation stories and and unashamedly using the word creation, which gives gives it a more of a 
I don't know, almost like a maternal sense of this is something that we need to take care of. And right. There's it was a, a gift given to us. Responsibility right. that right. that is missing in yeah. non-religious <laughs> sectors of our society. Right. And most of your people again aren't environmentalists. They're not all that much up on the technology, but they do go to. They often go to temple, to mosques, to churches, mm-hmm. uh, whatever. And uh, so if you can connect with them at th- that level, that's just as valuable as yeah. having uh, wonky people. <laughs> Definitely. You know? I mean, I think, yeah, we need everybody, but they, yeah. the faith-based people do bring something right. really critical to the whole uh, movement. So right. I'm glad you recognize that and advocated for it got it to happen yeah so what is going on now well we're uh we're uh looking at the next phase basically after after the uh, you were at the event at temple best Zion, where it was mostly uh folks from the religious community that came to mm-hmm. that although there were some union folks there as well and some other community people and environmental folks but um and that and that's when we we had been doing the climate pledge. Yes. And the interfaith group was uh, getting pledges from our different uh, faith organizations to also sign on to the pledge. Mm-hmm. If you remember, that scroll was 42 feet, I think, with all the organizations. Yeah, and, and signatures. I don't yeah. know how many thousands of people so signed Thousands that. of signatures and, and a lot of organizations. And uh, so the law students from UB were going to the Paris talk, so they took the scroll there. Mm-hmm. Just that it was a scroll itself is somewhat symbolic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, my understanding is the scroll was actually pre- presented to uh, was presented to Michael Brune from the Sierra. He was the executive director of the Sierra Club. Mm-hmm. He had a meeting shortly thereafter with John Kerry, oh, and okay. uh, they were trying to get through some impasses. So. We'll take credit. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but I think for the students, it was real. They they had a it was a wonderful event. Oh yeah. And and you know, and when we started that, we had no notion that we were going to go from the rally on the twenty fourth to having people actually going to Paris and and then actually taking all those things. We had so I think yeah. it's it's kind of the unintended consequences of what you do at the. Yeah, most of the stuff works. are leaps of faith. You know, you just <laughs> you do it, and, right. and the more you do it, the more people you bring into the circle. Yeah. And so you ask what organizing is. That's basically what it is. It's <laughs> it's just building relationships, building relationships, mm-hmm. and uh, and then mobilizing, trying to get people to do do more. Where we are now, having <clears throat> after Paris, that <clears throat> that was kind of a high moment. We brought everybody back together again. Mm-hmm. Uh, we met out at the Heim Road Mosque. We had probably 80 some, well, around 80 people came from the different faith traditions. We were very successful. We worked with the uh, Network of Religious Community, which is the ecumenical or interfaith organization mm-hmm. here in Western New York. So the ICE, the uh, interfaith climate justice community now is a part of, also has joined the Network of Religious Community. So we're, you're always trying to figure out how to broaden your base and network and get more people. So that's one accomplishment. We've built that relationship. Uh, the other is that we had an, the meeting at the Heim Road Mosque, uh, and we basically we had everybody from the different faith traditions uh, read something either that they're 
that their particular faith community, nationally, internationally, had written about climate change, climate justice, uh, and or from their texts, from their different traditions. And that was highly successful, just to have people from the different traditions talk about that, because creation turns out to be the central concept and mm -hmm. our responsibility to care for it. Every tradition holds that as a high, high value. So we had that consensus. The other is we looked at what is it we want to do. We broke down into tables and what what do we want to do. And it basically came down to, to four different things that we see the ICJC doing. One is creation spirituality and delving more deeply into uh, our faith traditions and trying to get more uh, awareness within our congregations of, of our obligation and of climate justice. Uh, second was the um, divestment mm. issue. Um, my denomination, the United Church of Christ, divested its clergy pension funds nationally mm -hmm. from fossil fuels, for example. So in other denominations, the Methodists are not investing in fossil fuels now, that kind of thing. The Catholics are looking at divesting. Then there's the other side of it, also investing in some of these companies. Right. Yeah. And, How do you? Right. Yeah. You, if you take it out, you got to put it in somewhere. Right. So that's part of the challenge. How do we start investing in renewables? The other investing, though, is that it's something that the Interfaith Center for Corporate Responsibility out of the National Council of Churches has done. It's actually the Catholic Sisters have been the most active, interestingly enough, in it. Okay. And uh, their communities often have large endowments. Mm. So, what do you, you know, they, that money gets invested. Uh, a lot of those communities, want, well, one, they want to re invest responsibly. That's one thing. But sometimes they'll take a company like ExxonMobil and, and buy up shares so they can go to the shareholder meetings Mm. And and speak and pass and enter resolutions into the uh, at the shareholder meetings, mm -hmm. and they often get booed initially. <laughs> but there've been a lot of success as well. So that's that's the other side of the strategy. Yeah. Besides divesting and reinvesting in renewables, is also invest in sometimes bad actors to try to get them to act yeah. good, so that you have a voice at yeah. their meetings. Yeah, yeah, and that sometimes works too. So. That's, that was another group. Another is uh, was greening your houses of worship and mm. your homes, and that. So many of our religious uh, buildings are drafty; they're cold. Mm -hmm. So issues of uh, energy audits and uh, energy conservation. What can you do? Uh, also, the easier things to do, like stop using styrofoam and things like that, <laughs> using you know regular ceramic cups and things like that. That's another way to do it. The other is, of course, invest in renewables. The Catholic Diocese here in Western New York has been doing a lot of solar on their on their churches. Ah. So that's another another aspect of it. The the fourth thing that our some of our folks are working on is political action or advocacy mm -hmm. and changing New York State policy and law. Okay. Or maybe federal policy law, but mostly New York State. Okay, so it's a state level, not really local, or? Uh, well, we see that a lot, if we're going to get renewables online, we're going to get more wind power and more solar. We need state action. We need uh, law at the state, state level, policy at the state level. Mm -hmm. So uh, we have this group called New York Renews, and... Um, they have uh, introduced something called the Climate and Community Protection Act, which has built into it 
uh, all the hopefully all the law we need to get to 50% by 2030. Mm. So it penalizes companies that don't get on board. It, um, it creates incentives for renewables and that kind of thing. And the, the value of it is probably as much as anything is it's brought together over 100 organizations, which the uh, interfaith, our interfaith group is a part of. So That's great. there may be advocacy for that. I think the religious community has a opportunity to lobby in a way sometimes that the environmentalists don't we um yeah, what's the difference well you know i like to get there as quickly as possible but uh the quakers have been very successful with the friend they have the friends oh it's escaping me but they have the uh, their legislative committee mm. their tactic is to actually go and speak to fairly conservative people and bring them over to our side mm. so they had success for example this wasn't I, the interfaith, our interfaith group, but the Quakers have been working on Tom Reed, who's a conservative Republican from Southern Tier. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had been a kind of a climate denier, skeptic, climate change denier, skeptic. They actually got him to sign a letter, along with a lot of other Congress people, admitting that uh, climate change is real and that the Congress needs to act. So it's slow going. It's not as fast as you want to get there, but it's using the persuasion of, uh, you know, and, and um, kind of appealing to his values. Mm. You know, hey, you're a, whatever, his religious affiliation, I don't know. But, you know, we're, we're all in this together kind of thing. So right. friends have done a, quite a bit of stuff around that. So those are, so those are the four yeah. aspects of yeah, those are what four, they're working on. Four, the t- four task groups right now that we've set up. Are you kind of, are you organizing them all or have you kind of tied yourself to one particular group which of the four are you well, most interested in yeah i'm part of a steering committee we, we have the steering committee that kind of pulled together the thing back in september of yeah, 2015 yeah. so we've kept that small core together mm-hmm. and so we plan the bigger meetings okay yeah and i the group i went to was the investment divestment group i see but uh, we've got people on each of those and they're all important that's great so i think we just had a meeting this this morning, so we're ready for our next big meeting, and so we're you know we're just taking it step by step. How do we how do we actually make the investment divestment group work? How do we make it strong? How do we build? So we do it here in Western New York. How do we get our congregations active in it? Mm-hmm. So that's so that's where we are. We're trying to to figure out how to broaden the network and get out into the religious communities. That's yeah. great. Thank it's a, you. It's a big job. <laughs> yeah, it is. So maybe this ties into what you just said. So maybe it answers the question. But what are you, what are you working on right now, Sierra Club, climate justice movement, or otherwise that you're most passionate about? Well, <clears throat> the interfaith group isn't really part of the Sierra Club, although it comes out of right. It. Exactly. That's that's kind yeah. of what we came out of that base. Um, well, I'm most interested in, uh, actually legislation. I'm interested in the Climate and Community Protection Act Mm -hmm. and getting that passed. So that means we're going to have to do, be involved both in direct action, sometimes going down and disrupting a little bit in Albany. Mm -hmm. Uh, it means that we have to be involved in legislative action. We have to endorse candidates. So, as the direct of the as the chair of the political committee, uh, basically, I was the one that sent out the interviews and 
inter- and did the interviewing, and then we we uh, then endorse certain candidates. And then we're. I think the next step. I don't think Sierra Club's done a real good job of this, but I'd like to see us do, be more active then in helping with these campaigns and help mm-hmm. get them elected. Okay. That kind of thing. So it's beyond just having the Sierra Club name on their literature, but. Okay, do you go out and knock on doors, that kind of thing. So Yeah, what is the timeline for this particular legislation? Like- well, you know, it actually passed the assembly last session. It got introduced and passed quickly. Nice. Uh but it didn't get through the Senate. The Senate's mm-hmm. still dominated by Republicans and uh I think to some extent we're going back to the drawing board and trying to figure out how to how to do that. Mm-hmm. The Working Families Party, which I'm part of, is a is a big element of of helping to get this passed because uh, we have some leverage over a lot of these politicians. Mm-hmm. Uh, just uh, briefly, just New York State's what we call a fusion state. So, Working Families Party out here in Western New York, for example, we can endorse different senators and uh, ah. assembly members and local uh, candidates. Uh, and um, sometimes are these candidates often they win because they have our line, even though we're small. Mm-hmm. Give you an example, I live on Grand Island. Uh, our supervisor got elected out there a couple of years ago. He uh, <clears throat> he won by a handful of votes, but our, our line got 300 and some votes for him, 330 some votes. Had he not had our line, he probably wouldn't have got elected. Wow. Then I go meet with our supervisor every so often and talk to him about things that we want. Yeah. We, and uh, quite honestly saying, you know, that we we're hoping you'll get behind this or that, and if, if you don't, we may not give you the endorsement next time. That's the way politics works. Right. So uh, that's that's part of what we're doing, and the Sierra Club, also by its endorsement process, is trying to influence. That's good. These legislators. So. Okay. Yeah. I like that. All right. Well, we're gonna transition then to my last couple of questions, which I told you about. Which I forgot. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> well, it'll be fresh then. So we'll start off with um, answer this in any way that you want, but where in yourself, in Western New York, or in you know society at large, do you experience a world that's dying? And then the flip side of that will be where do you experience something being born? So what's leaving us and then what's coming into right. that's a very Right. That's a very good question. Well, I... I experience, I think I'm experiencing climate change and personally, I live on Grand Island. Mm-hmm. We moved there in, in uh, 1976 and uh, I live on West River and I experience now something I've never, we, when we first moved there, it may, you know, and I don't know if data will back me up, but I suspect it will. I've never seen such high winds and so frequent winds as I've been seeing on Grand Island. We we just, 40 and 50 mile an hour winds are now commonplace. My dad used to sail on the Great Lakes, uh, one of the big freighters. And uh, you would expect one one big blow. When we say a big blow, it could be up to 67 mile an hour winds. And it would come in November and that'd be kind of it. But it, we're just experiencing it almost every Every few days, we're getting these high winds, and I've never seen anything quite like that. So I attribute some of that experience to that. I've seen the in the growing season; it's changing. I experience that personally because I garden a lot, and 
What do you What do you garden? I raise tomatoes and peppers and especially hot peppers and all that kind of stuff. Nice. Uh, lettuce and cabbage. And the The growing season is it's getting longer. Right. It's getting drier to some extent in the summer. I find I have to. I, not just the summer, but the spring. We used to count on. It seems to me now again. I, I we have to look at the meteorological data, but I. Uh, I find myself I find myself um, irrigating things right after I planted them, and there was no rain in June and mm-hmm. in July. You know, and it's like so. I'm doing a lot more irrigation, <laughs> that kind of stuff. That's what I experienced. I think the other though is what I experienced through the media and through reading scientific reports and stuff is that um, it's clear the the Antarctic ice shelf is collapsing. They're finding islands that they didn't know were there because the ice is gone. Um, that's all just so totally alarming. The I heard up to 70% of the coral reefs are bleached. That's again warming. Uh, the oxygen levels that are going into the, into the oceans may be dropping. The uh, Orca whales, the up in the, in the uh, I think it was the Arctic, are not finding enough food. Mm-hmm. It might be the Antarctic, though. Actually, uh, the the females are losing body fat, and they think a lot of the food is disappearing. And uh, so, just that's almost every day you get a new report of something, and yeah. and then you get and then you're aware that there are these feedback back loops, and and the. I think what's alarming a lot of the climate scientists is it's happening a lot faster than they ever anticipated it would. I know. So I experienced it. I, I learned about this in, right. in college. I, I graduated in 2007, and I really thought that this was something my grandchildren were going to have to deal with. Right. And I don't really know what point I realized, no, it will be me right. too. <laughs> but that was an interesting yeah. realization to have. I'm remembering now Bill McKibben's oh, book, okay, End yeah. of Nature. End of Nature, okay. And, okay. you know, at the time when I read it, I thought, well, maybe it's a little exaggerated, but it all seemed to be coming true. He said basically what I got out of it was that the seasons as we used to know them are just going to be totally disrupted. And it's and I, that's kind of the way I feel. I mean, yeah. here we are. T- tomorrow it's going to be, or the next day, 50 degrees, another mm-hmm. 50 degree. I mean, we used to have these spring thaw or the thaws in January and stuff, but now it's just commonplace. That, right. <clears throat> yeah. I grew up in Western New York and experienced the four seasons, but then I spent eight years in Texas, and it's been weird being back since 2015 because I, especially in the summer, keep mm-hmm. having these, and in the winter now too, that it's a little more mild. But I have these like flashbacks to Texas, like this feels like Texas to me. Right. <laughs> and I, I think that's real because right. things are shifting. So. And I think the you know the other thing, the other people that are making us aware of this, and the, the reason I think the nurses unions are. Yeah, that's an interesting. On board one. Yeah. is because. We're beginning to understand all the health impacts. So we see it kind of directly when Hurricane Sandy hit. A lot of people went to hospital because of the acute effects of the storm. They got wiped out and got injured and ended up in the hospitals. But we're seeing also the diseases and things. Their patterns are starting to change. And the American Public Health Association is getting much more aware of the disease side of it. So I think that to the extent that this information starts filtering out to the populace and the voters, they may begin to 
ex- experience it more directly, mm-hmm. uh, at least may become. I think that's been the problem with climate change is that it's not part of our everyday experience. We just don't think in terms of it's just too big and too amorphous. Yeah. And they just feel like, oh, it's just the weather. But I think the more and more that we're accumulating these experiences as well as data yeah there's a grow going to be a growing awareness <clears throat> so can you answer the flip side of what's being born oh. <laughs> well i think first of all when the pope came out with his encyclical that was one of the most hopeful things i experienced i i i see him as a major moral leader in the world and uh and uh, so that was a very hopeful thing to me. That that told me that the religious community has a lot to offer to this whole campaign. And uh, so I think I, I'm optimistic about that. Um, generally optimistic that, well, I was just listening to NPR this morning. And they were talking about how under Richard Nixon we got we got the Environmental Protection Act and the Occupational Safety and Health Act both passed with his blessing. Yeah. And then he uh, he um, appointed Ruckelshaus, another Republican, to run the program, kind of his environmental stuff, and um, I think made him head of EPA. So these were Republicans right. who caught, kind of got it. Mm-hmm. And part of that, but in those days, the issue was more clean air, clean water. Right. And those acts got passed at that time, and... And the experience that people were having is the Cuyahoga River started on fire. Right. Smog was uh, rampant, in, particularly in California. The impact, health impacts were very clear. And yeah. once we got those acts passed, we, we started seeing a diminution of the smog, and the waters got cleaner and so forth. The air got cleaner. Reagan tried to roll those back. Right. And his environmental protection uh, uh, head... Uh, ended up resigning. She resigned, and a lot of that had to do with the pushback yeah. uh, that we put. To go back to Nixon and passing those laws, do you think? Did you read at the time, and did you have? Do you have any thoughts on what Rachel Carson's Silent Spring did oh, for that? Very, high, very important. Yeah. Did you read it at the time, or how did you that know? I was a biology unfold? student. I was a biology student at Central Michigan University in sixty. Three, I think. I think she came out with those. Silent Spring was a series of articles in the New Yorker magazine. Then it became. Then it was put okay. into a book form. And I asked my one of my my entomology professor. I, I was really interested in entomology. And I said, "What do you think of uh, Rachel Carson's book?" And he guys kind of poo pooed it. Mm-hmm. But we only lived thirty miles from Dow Chemical over in uh, in. Uh, Oh, what's the name of the town? Anyway, but we were only 30 miles away, and our our college got money uh, from them for yeah. stuff. So um, that might have had some influence. But but uh, her, her book really did, I think, was a eye opener, and it became became widely uh, known. The other the other person, other personage, I would attribute a lot to, uh, of what happened was uh, was uh, Cesar Chavez. Mm-hmm. who led the Farm Workers Union out in California. And uh, he had a method of organizing, which was to do boycotts all over the country. He'd get people to boycott grapes, for example, uh-huh. that were grown in California if the growers weren't entering into contracts with his union. 
And part of, one of the big issues that came out of that was the pesticide exposure stuff. And uh, there was a lot more awareness uh, in the mid-60s, in addition to Carson's book, the kind of direct experience of the farm workers. And they, they made uh, toxic chemicals one of their big platforms as mm -hmm. much as, say, low wages or exploitation. They made uh, exposure to toxics a big, big issue. So that became more part of our consciousness. Then I mentioned Tony Mazaki in the industrial unions, there, there became, and the coal miner unions, the awareness. It all kind of fed on each other. I think, you know, maybe Carson started some thinking about it. Chavez and then the other unions, the, the uh, textile workers union where the cotton dust exposures are occurring, the asbestos workers. Uh, so the health impacts all became part of our common knowledge by by the late 60s. So yeah. then the environmental movement kind of built off that, and the students got very active, young people got active, and uh, just one last little thing I'll say about that movement. In the first Earth Day, yeah. 1970, which brought together Ralph Nader, the consumer activist, Tony Mazaki, union activist, Walter Ruther, the head of the United Auto Workers, the uh, person who uh, led that whole was the main organizer for that Earth Day thing, whose name is a moment escaping me, said that without the United Auto Workers, they would have never pulled that off. Because wow. the UAW gave all the money for the publicity, all the money for the, you know, all the literature, all the material. Yeah. And uh, so that was an example of how uh, progressive people came together from labor and environment. And then Nixon, I think he just felt like he couldn't, it, there was just too much public pressure building yeah. up he couldn't ignore it and the first earth day was i think one of the turning points and that's when we got those laws right yeah i don't i think nixon didn't think that the we'll pass the laws we'll get them off our back yeah but then then came the clean air act clean water act endangered the, species the, act was there yes too. then yeah. tosca which never became what we wanted to oh, become okay but uh so, so all those acts and then so there was really concrete stuff yeah and then osha became real in 1976 when jimmy carter became mm -hmm. president he appointed a industrial hygienist uh who was excellent eula bingham and she really made um really got into setting standards for chemical exposures for workers okay and then when reagan came in he wanted to turn all that back because the corporations were really pissed off so is it really it's a bottom line thing it's a money money thing that's why they're angry yeah you know it was and and but once they realize the costs aren't aren't worth the uh the fight that they're putting up mm -hmm. then they'll often cave that's what happened with the um right to know act mm. we passed him at the we could never pass him under reagan at the national level yeah so we started passing with the state level you got a few states passing them they weren't all the same yeah. acts finally the chemical industry said let's just pass a federal law Mm -hmm. It was called the Hazard Communication Standard, and it, it kind of standardized so that every state had the same kind of uh, obligations. So, I see. So they couldn't they couldn't just shop around from state to state. So that's that, yeah. So that's I think we're that's where we are right now. Quite honestly, I think the the with with the president and the Congress we have right now, we're not going to get any federal legislation. So we had to go back to the state levels, mm -hmm. get stuff passed. California's passing good stuff. New York State, if we get New York, if we get the climate and 
uh, Climate Justice Act passed, Community Protection Act passed, then other states are going to start looking at it. So yeah. I think that's our opportunity. Great. Yeah, I agree. Thank you. So that is all that I have, but is there anything else that you'd want to say or add to people listening to this? Well, what makes you hopeful, Laura? What? I want to know what makes you hopeful. What makes me hopeful? Oh, okay. Um, I, I'm hopeful about the number of people who are engaged at the present moment compared to just a few months ago. I've always felt very lonely and that right. I'm in some sort of, I don't know, alternative universe where I care about things that uh-huh. other people don't. And that's completely turned on its head now. It's it's almost like now I'm starting to get self-conscious that I don't care or do enough. And that's never been the case. So <laughs> I'm, uh, I guess that's where I'm hopeful right. is just the number of people that are tuned into something's wrong and what can I do about it right so I do see this as a time that's a huge opportunity for a shift right and I haven't never felt that way right now are you familiar with this group indivisible no Uh uh-huh I guess they're becoming kind of a national group but it's they're helping to organize these campaigns at legislators offices like Ah. the tea party did there was the sense the tea party was quite successful right in uh but basically going after a lot of Democrats yeah. and threatening them, you know, if you don't get on board with what we want, yeah. we're going to run somebody against you. We'll raise money. Yeah. I think that's indivisible is now kind of taking that from the left side of the okay. aisle and they're looking at doing the same thing. That's good <clears throat> to know. I, I think one of the things I'm, I'm struggling with at the moment is that, I am there's so many different groups that are forming that right. I don't know what what's going to happen or right. or how to, you know, attach yeah. myself to different yeah. different things. Right now I'm very committed to Sierra Club and yeah. a yeah. couple of other groups, but yeah, it's funny how I I haven't heard about this one yet. I did yeah. hear about one called Unify, so yeah. I don't know are they uh, you're shaking them out right now or I, I don't know that much about it but they're getting I think they're getting active locally now okay. and, and there's the Bernie Sanders folks uh, yeah. our revolution it's I mm. think they're trying to figure yeah. we're all trying to figure out how to how to build uh, on what we had and I agree with you I think this is an opportunity I think we have a president who is so retrograde in terms of taking us back in time right that, that people are going to at some point even his his supporters uh, a lot of his supporters are going to say wait a minute uh, was the obamacare and the affordable care act the same thing yeah, <laughs> i think that... i think i think they're gonna and i'm hoping he comes after medicare that's my my generation cares uh, about that yeah so yeah. come bring it on because i can tell you that people love their medicare and right. uh so I think the more he he tries to turn things back, programs that we care about, mm-hmm. as long as he doesn't uh, take us all down with him, I think that we really do have an opportunity to organize and mobilize. Right. I, I mean, my current strategy, I, I, I'm trying to pay attention and, you know, be an informed citizen, but I'm also trying to ignore what he's doing and just trying to create something outside of it. So mm-hmm. that's been my 
right. strategy. I don't know if it is wise or foolish, but time will tell. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, yeah. we all get swept up into things that we don't. You know, I, the first time I experienced people power was during the Vietnam War because mm-hmm. we had a first we had a Democrat, Lyndon Johnson, who was supporting it, and we rallied against him. He resigned. He didn't. He didn't resign, but he said, "I'm not running for another term." Mm. That's people power. We we mm. went to Washington. We got on those buses once a month. We'd be down there rallying, and uh, it continued right through up until then. Nixon came in in '68, and he can. He said, "I'm going to end the war," but he didn't. And so we just kept the pressure on, mm-hmm. and uh, so I think the you know the anti-war movement eventually brought 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 a change in policy and. Uh, he he backed down, and uh, so I think we have. It'll happen again. Yeah, it's it's people power. It's building. Right. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, I agree. And, and you got Facebook, so you uh, can, you can mobilize. I don't, I don't like Facebook very much, but <laughs> Twitter's okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Anyways, uh, thank you so much. Um, it's been great to talk to you, and I will be working with you soon. So thanks. Okay. Thanks, Laura. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> thank you so much for listening to the keeping things alive podcast my name is laura evans and if you would like more information about me this podcast or other work that i care about please visit www.keepingthingsalive.org